You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 50 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for November 2017. So it's another solo show, uh, so I'm going to continue my series of picking photographic terms or phrases and sort of talking through them in detail for a show. Uh, last time I did one of these solo shows, the, the topic I chose was exposure, or specifically exposure time. Uh, and I mentioned the fact that exposure was part of the exposure triangle. Uh, we talked about EV and all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, so that triangle, like all triangles, has three sides. So exposure is one side. Uh, sensitivity or ISO is, is another side. And then the third side is aperture. So that's what I want to talk to you about this time around. And probably not surprising since we did exposure last time and aperture this time. The chance of the next time we do one of these solo shows, it's going to be about sensitivity or ISO. Okay, so let's get stuck in. And let's just start off by saying that in science, the definition of the word aperture is that it is a hole in some sort of surface. So if you take a sheet of paper and you cut out a hole out of it, what you have done is created an aperture. Uh, in photography, though, we're a little bit more specific. Um, in photography, what we're talking about is the size of the opening in a lens that the light passes through as it's focused by the lens onto the focal plane, which is where the image is recorded. So in other words, onto the sensor or the piece of film or the piece of sensitized glass or whatever it is you're using to record the image. So your lens is going to have a certain size of opening through which the light has to pass as it goes through the lens onto the photosensitive whatever. And that is that hole that it passes through that is the aperture. So as we've already mentioned, aperture is one of the three legs of the exposure triangle. Um, The reason it affects the exposure of an image is because the bigger the hole, the more light comes through. Therefore, the bigger the physical aperture through which the light is passing, the brighter the image and the smaller the hole, the darker the image. So I guess that that, that much is pretty straightforward to understand. Um, Many of our cameras, and you might think most, but actually in the modern world of smartphones, that's probably not true anymore, but many cameras allow you to control the size of the aperture. And in fact, it's not the camera so much that allows you to do that. It's actually the lens, because remember, the aperture is inside the lens. So if you have a lens for any sort of camera with detachable lenses, it's it's absolutely, almost certainly going to have a variable aperture. Uh, but even on, on point-and-shoot cameras, you probably have a variable aperture. Where things stop, or where you tend not to have variable apertures, is on really small uh, camera systems, because there just isn't room for for you know for that kind of thing. And so the ultimate example would be smartphones. An awful lot of smartphone cameras actually have fixed aperture lenses, because there's just no way you could have controllable apertures on something so teeny, teeny, tiny as a sensor on, you know, on, on a phone. Uh, On the cameras, or rather on the lenses, where you do have variable apertures, the way this is is managed is by having multiple blades that come in from the edge of the lens and they sort of, they block off parts of the lens coming in evenly from all sides so that the hole is always right in the middle, because if the hole wasn't in the middle, things just wouldn't work at all. Um, And... 
these tend to be done as, as sort of overlapping blades, uh, and you, you've sort of you've probably seen the, the famous image of what Aperture Blades look like because that is the icon for say the Aperture app is Aperture Blades, and you also see it as the icon for uh, I think Affinity Photo has Aperture Blades in its icon. It's a very common image of these six or so blades coming in to create an octagonal hole in the middle. Um, and so those those blades coming in and moving out are what determine the size of the aperture. So they're they're how you physically control the aperture setting. And actually, the the shape of those blades, although as you look through the camera you cannot see the blades, they still have an effect on the final photo in two distinct ways. So the first really big effect aperture blades have is on the quality of the bokeh. So the bokeh is the bokeh is what. Actually, the quality of the bokeh makes no sense. So the bokeh is the quality of the out-of-focus region of your images. So literally, it it directly affects the bokeh. Uh, So you can have fewer or more blades. And in fact, the more expensive your lens, probably the more aperture blades the lens has. And on on good lenses, the blades won't just be straight lines. They'll be gently curved lines. And the idea is that you want the resulting hole to be as close to perfectly circular as possible. But, of course, you would need infinity blades to have a perfect circle. And no lens manufacturer has infinity blades in their lens. So every lens is imperfect in some way off the theoretical perfection of the circle. And exactly how you're not circular affects the harshness or the softness of the out-of-focus regions in your images. In other words, it affects the bokeh. And generally speaking, an expensive lens will have either many or very carefully shaped aperture blades to give you a nice, soft, pleasant bokeh, whereas a cheaper lens may have fewer blades, they'll just be plain old straight blades, and it will give you a harsher, less pleasing-looking bokeh. The other place where the shape of the blades is visible in your final image is in what are called diffraction spikes. Um, you might call them sunbursts, uh, or lens flare would be another word for them. It's those, those big... Well, actually, no, lens flare is slightly different, but basically the, the big spikes that come out of bright things are diffraction spikes. And different lenses will give you different numbers of spikes arranged at different angles from each other, and the reason is because they have different shapes of aperture blade. And some lenses will give you very, very pleasing starbursts or sunbursts or diffraction spikes, if we're going to use this proper scientific term, and some will give you less pleasing. So I have a wide-angle lens I'm extremely fond of, which groups the diffraction spikes into three distinct clusters of three. So it's sort of like a, a power of three thing going on, which I find really pleasing. So I love shooting into the sun with that lens because it gives me these pleasing spikes. A lot of lenses will give you more traditional four-pointed, six-pointed, eight-pointed star or whatever. Again, it's just it's the shape and number of those blades that determines those the, the relative size and orientation of those spikes. Um, so that's that's where they come from. So if we leave aside now the the specifics of the shape of the aperture slash hole the light is passing through, something else we have to bear in mind from a sort of a, a physics point of view is that light acts a bit funny whenever it passes through an aperture. It deflects ever so slightly, or to be scientific about it, it, ref- it defracts. It doesn't refract, it defracts. And the specific kind of diffraction that happens when light passes through an aperture is something called Fresnel diffraction, um, which is actually used in overhead projectors. They're they're so-called Fresnel lenses. They use this effect. But anyway, as the light is passing through the aperture in your lens, 
it is diffracted by passing through that aperture. And the size of the aperture has an effect on the amount of deflection or diffraction there is. So a pinhole has effectively zero diffraction. If it were an actually infinitely small hole, then the diffraction would be actually zero. But of course, you can't have light passing through an infinitely small hole because an infinitely small hole is an opaque surface. But anyway, the reason a pinhole camera seems to have a really deep depth of field is because it has no diffraction effectively. And the bigger you make the aperture, the more the light diffracts as it passes through that aperture. And so as the aperture gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, your depth of field gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. In other words, what's actually happening is that the focus falls off more quickly as the aperture gets bigger. So your lens is going to be focused at a specific distance away from the front of the lens. So you might focus on someone's eye or on a tree or whatever. And if you have a physically small opening for the light to pass through, then the stuff that's a few centimeters in front of or behind where you've actually focused will still be sharp. But if you start to make that aperture ever wider, then the bit that that's still sharp shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And so... A shallow depth of field is where the distance between, you know, the the thing you focus on and, and the, the, you know, how how long that focus lasts effectively, forward or away from the thing, the distance you focused at, is your depth of field. And big apertures give you shallow depths of field, and small physical apertures give you large depths of field. So, you know, that is important to know, and that's one of the biggest artistic effects of aperture is that. The size of the aperture determines the depth of, or is one of the factors that determines the depth of field. There's other factors that determine depth of field too, but the aperture size is a very big factor in, in that equation for calculating depth of field. Okay, so we know that the aperture of a lens is the hole the light passes through, and we've talked about the effects that the, the physics of the light passing through that hole has. So it determines the, the bokeh and it determines the diffraction spikes. And it determines, or it is one of the factors that helps determine the depth of field because the size of the hole affects how much Fresnel diffraction you get as the light passes through. Okay, so far I haven't really talked about how we actually measure aperture size. Now you might think since it's a size, right, we're talking about a physical hole, you might think that we would measure it in one of the sort of the, the normal ways we measure circles. So maybe the radius or the diameter or the circumference. But we don't. We measure it in something called an F number, which is actually a focal ratio, if you're going to be precise about it. Uh, Why do we do it that way? Well, the big reason is that the physical size of an aperture is meaningless across camera systems. So if you have, a let's say you have a lens on a camera phone and you have your aperture at three millimeters, Actually, that's really bright on such a teeny tiny sensor. That's actually a really big aperture. You take that same three millimeters and you stick it onto a 35 millimeter full frame DSLR and it's a teeny weeny tiny aperture. It's going to be really, really dark. Uh, But it's even worse than that because even if you don't change the camera, so if you go from a camera phone to a phone camera to a a full frame DSLR, of course the size of the hole is going to be massively different. But let's just say you, you pick one. So you pick the full frame DSLR and you stick a really wide-angle lens on it, maybe even a fisheye lens, and then you put a 3mm aperture on. That aperture is actually quite large. And then you take the same camera, you screw off the 
wide angle lens and you put on a telephoto lens and you set it to an aperture that's three millimeters across physically, that's suddenly become a really, really, really dark image. So those three millimeters have no meaning across camera systems and they have no meaning even across lenses on the same camera. So measuring aperture in terms of the number of millimeters across is just pointless. It's a meaningless number. So what it will be more meaningful? Well, after much jiggery-pokery, what photographers have settled on, because it helps make equations like the equations for calculating uh, the EV value that a change in aperture makes and so forth, easier to do, what we have settled on is, what, like I say, we call it the F-number, or the F-stop, or the F-ratio, or the focal ratio. They're all synonyms for the same thing. So focal ratio, F-number, F-ratio or F-stop are all the same thing. We tend to write it as lowercase f slash and then the number. So F slash 4 would be a focal ratio of 4, or we would probably just say it in English as F4. So we might talk about an F1.4 lens. So that's F slash 1.4. So it's the focal ratio of 1.4. Okay, ratio. Focal ratio. So ratio implies we divide something by something else. And that's exactly what we do. It's the focal length of the lens divided by the diameter of the aperture. So if you have a a 50 millimeter lens and the aperture is 10 millimeters, then, so you have to have both numbers in the same, right? So a 50 millimeter lens with an aperture of 10 millimeters would be 50 divided by 10 would be f5. And that turns out to be meaningful across different cameras. If I say to you that I'm using an f1.4 lens, you will immediately say, oh, that's a bright lens. Because whether I'm using a telephoto or a wide-angle lens, a camera phone or a full-frame DSLR, an f1.4 lens is a bright lens. In fact, it's not even in cameras, just telescopes are also measured and telescopes are also use focal ratios. So a telescope with with a focal ratio of 1.4 would be a very bright telescope as well. I mean, it is it is meaningful across different systems in a way that the actual raw number wouldn't be. So focal ratio is just the focal length divided by the diameter. And as long as you measure the focal length and the diameter in the same units, you will get the right answer. It's a ratio. So if you measure the focal length in millimeters, you have to also measure the diameter of the aperture in millimeters. Uh, but that's kind of the only place you could possibly go wrong. Now, the physicists among you will immediately notice that the focal ratio has a nice property. It is a dimensionless number because it's the same dimension on both inputs, so there's no dimension left on the output. So there's no you can't get the wrong unit on a focal ratio. It is a ratio, so it is 1.4 or whatever. Um, and so that that's you know so that is that is how we measure. Our aperture, we measure it as a focal ratio, but it has a a somewhat annoying property. Um, So I say, physically speaking, a big aperture results in a bright image and results in a shallow depth of field. But it's focal length divided by diameter. So a big physical aperture results in a small focal ratio. So... A big physical hole translates to, say, f1.4, whereas a small physical hole will translate to f64 or something like that. So it's inverted. A small focal ratio means a big aperture. Small focal ratio means a very bright image. Small focal ratio does mean a small depth of field. So at least that one isn't inverted. But it does, it does take a little bit getting there. So a bigger physical hole is a smaller F number because you divide by the diameter. 
Okay, so at this stage, we, we've pretty much covered the the physics uh, and the mathematics and the sort of the the practicalities of aperture. So it's we know what's the size of a hole. We know we measure it in F numbers or focal ratios. And we know what's going on in terms of depth of field and so forth. So I think the last thing we really need to talk about, given that this is a show about the art and craft of photography, is artistically, why why is it photographers want control over the aperture? And ultimately... When you as a photographer decide to assert yourself over the aperture setting, the thing that you're controlling is the depth of field. And there's many reasons you would want to do so. There's a certain practical thing. Um, Sometimes you want subject isolation. It's a fancy pants term. What you want is the thing you're photographing to be in focus and everything else to fall out of focus. If you have a particularly noisy, busy background, it will distract from the thing you're taking a photograph of. So in that kind of a situation, what you want to do is you want to have your subject in focus and the background out of focus so that that distraction literally blurs away. Um, So a good example of this might be a delicate little flower or something. Most gardens are very busy places. So if you had a flower in the foreground and the rest of the garden in the background, the chances are the rest of the garden is going to be completely distracting. And people aren't going to know, is this a photograph of a flower? Is this a photograph of a garden? What's going on here? Well, if you isolate the flower. In fact, a lot of flowers grow in large groups. So you may actually not just want to isolate the flower from the other flowers, you may want to isolate one blossom from all the other blossoms on the same flower, because otherwise it's going to be all distracting and people aren't going to know what it is you're taking a picture of. Basically, you're not going to have control over where the viewer's eye goes. And as a photographer, that's, of course, what you're trying to do. So subject isolation is a big deal. Um, Again, portraits would be a classic example where you want the person's face to be in focus and then the background to fall away, unless it's an environmental portrait. Whole other thing. So again, you're making choices as a photographer and you're using the aperture setting to control the depth of field. And it's not always about getting it as small as possible, right? Because particularly if you're using a very bright lens, say an f1.4 lens, you actually may find yourself fighting with the opposite problem where the, their eyes are sharp, but even the tip of their nose has fallen out of focus because the depth of field is so shallow. Uh, if you're working on macro photography, it's actually often extremely difficult to get as much as you need in focus. Um, so again, you're trying to control things. If you're taking a portrait of one person, you're going to want a pretty shallow depth of field, just catch their face and then let all the rest fall out of focus. If you're taking a family photo or a group photo, well, you want to make sure that it's not just Bob who's in focus. You would like everyone to be in focus. The chances are that they're standing in a little semicircle, you know, not quite a semicircle, but in, in an arc. They're probably Some of them are closer to you, some of them are further away. You might have two rows of people. Well, if you set your depth of field too shallow, you're going to have maybe the people in the back sharp and the people in the front soft or vice versa. So it is important to control the depth of field, depending on what you want. Now, the obvious example of the inverse of a portrait is a landscape shot. And in a landscape shot, you, the chances are to get a sense of depth, to get a real feel of a landscape, you're usually looking for multiple layers. So something of interest in the foreground, like a gate or a rock or a tree or a bush or a flower or you know, a bale of hay, something to set the scene in the foreground, give you a sense of place. And then you have some sort of mid-ground, which is the main landscape itself, and then some sort of background, which is you know, mountain range or nice clouds or something else. So, you know, a good landscape photograph generally has multiple layers. And generally speaking, some of those layers will be a few metres away from you. And some of those layers will be many, many kilometres away from you. So you're actually looking for a massive depth of field here. So you're going to be using your aperture to control that. You see, you're, not, you're going to take very few landscape shots at f1.4. Very few. 
but you are going to want to, um, you know, stop it right down, is what we call having a big F number. So F22, maybe, well, you know, whatever, depending on your camera system, you're going to go down to a big F number, you know, F8 and above. So again, you're, you are artistically controlling that shot by controlling the aperture because the aperture directly affects your depth of field. So really, when you're thinking of asserting control over the aperture, you're thinking of asserting control over depth of field. So you might do that in aperture priority mode where you tell the camera, I insist on this aperture and I don't really care how you balance the other legs of the exposure triangle, make it work. So that's aperture priority mode. I assert one leg of the triangle and the camera may jiggle with the other two to give you a correct exposure. Uh, If you put the camera into fun manual, you need to do the juggling. So if you say, well, I really want this to be at F8 or it's not going to be the right depth of field. Well, then you set the aperture to F8 and then you look through the camera and the light meter will show you whether you're too bright or too dark. And then you might say, oh, okay, I've got to expand my exposure a little. Click, 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 click. And then you get it all to balance out. Now, another place where aperture comes in is when you start to go to the extremes. Um, when you, you know, let's say nighttime photography, astrophotography, you're trying to go to an extreme here. Now, the night sky is all at infinite focus, so it's not about depth of field because you focus the camera at infinity, everything in the sky is at infinity, so depth of field is irrelevant. What you want there is you want every little photon of light to make its way onto that image sensor because there were so precious few photons of light falling from those distant stars and galaxies and nebulae and cool things. So you want that aperture as far open as the camera will allow. So if you have an f1.4 lens and you're pointing at the sky, well, dial it to f1.4 and pull all that light in. Let in as much light as you can so that you have as much exposure as possible on that really dark subject. And there is actually an inverse of that as well, which is, what if you are trying to play with time? What is it? What, what if you, if you really need a long exposure so that you can get a beautiful, silky smooth blur on a waterfall, or you want that sort of blur as clouds go moving across the sky? Well, to do that, you need a really long exposure, but the chances are that unless you're doing it at night, you are going to have a problem of too much light. If you make your exposure time long and your aperture is big, you're just going to flood your sensor with too much light. So in that kind of a situation, what you're going to want is to take that aperture and stop it down physically as small as it can get, which is, of course, as we learned, the bigger possible F number. So if you're trying to take a picture of a waterfall or a flowing river and you want to get that blur into it, you're not actually interested in the depth of field. You just desperately need control of the time axis. Well, then you would use the aperture to free to make it possible to get the time that you're after. So again, because it's part of the exposure triangle, maybe the reason you're controlling your aperture is to make possible something you want to do with time or to make possible the gathering of enough light that you can actually see a really, really dim subject. So it's not only about controlling the depth of field. Sometimes you're you're asserting control of the aperture because you want to let in as much light as possible because there's just so precious little of it, or because you're trying to exclude as much light as possible because actually the problem you have is too much light overwhelming the photograph you want to take because you want to really stretch the time axis or something like that. So they are, artistically speaking, why you would want... The reasons I could come up with anyway. There may be other reasons you want to artistically assert control over the aperture, but thinking about how I use my camera, that's sort of what comes to mind, that from an artistic point of view, when I'm 
asserting myself over the aperture setting. I'm doing it because I want to control the depth of field, make it really deep or really shallow or somewhere in between, right? It's not always about the extremes, you know, it's put it somewhere in the middle. Um, there is also a saying, if you're not sure what to do with the aperture, or in fact, if you're not sure how to get a good photograph, the old saying goes, the key is F8 and to be there. In other words, if something happens, your camera's at F8, you fire the shot, you just have to be there to fire the shot, and you, that's how you get good photographs. So if in doubt, F8 is a really good, generic, middle-of-the-road, not excessively shallow, not excessively deep sort of aperture setting. So F8 and B there is, is one of those things I like to remember as well. Anyway, that, uh, that, that sort of wraps up everything I wanted to tell you about aperture. Now, before I finish out the show completely, I do sort of want to acknowledge the fact that this is episode 50. So this is a monthly podcast and we've made it to episode 50. So, wow, I've been doing this for a while. And that seems like a really good time to just reiterate the fact that without you guys, without the listener community, this podcast could not exist. There are no advertisers. The only the only people who support this show are you guys, and I greatly appreciate it. Some of you simply support the show by telling your friends. That's really important, and that is very much appreciated. Some of you leave reviews in iTunes or other podcatchers, and again, that's really important because it bumps the show's rating up. So that again, that helps people find the show. It helps expand the audience. So that's that's a really useful and good thing, and I appreciate when people do that. Some of you tweet about it, post about it on Facebook. You know that that again is telling your friends, and that again is extremely useful to spread the news. And then some of you donate in actual monetary senses, and that is also important because at the end of the day, we live in a in a world where it takes money to make things happen, and you know servers don't pay for themselves. And so those of you who have, you know, sporadically, even just once, you know, clicked on that PayPal button and sent uh, a few euros or dollars or whatever whatever currency of your choosing my way, that really helps. Um, it, as I say, it helps in the practical stuff, like there are bills to be paid every year and every month. So, you know, some bills are annual, some bills are monthly. Um, and they need to be paid. And we're now at a stage at last um, where the Let's Talk Apple slash Let's Talk Photography together, because they they run off the same server and stuff, they're pretty much breaking even now. You know, certainly as as an economics exercise, they're breaking even. You know, if you go some months, it might be you know a few euro short, and some months a few euro extra, whatever. But on the whole, they're breaking even, and that's fantastic. But there are also longer term um, costs, so. I have to say I have had listeners donate pieces of software I have needed. Um, in fact, I'm recording this in an app called Amadeus Pro that was donated by a listener. So, you, you know, that is really appreciated. I'm recording this by speaking into a microphone that was donated by a listener. I think I complained that um, I needed a new mic and that would be nice if there were some more money coming in. And someone simply donated me a mic. I mean, the problem to be solved was I wanted a new mic and hey, presto, I have a new mic. So, you know. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That is a superb way to support the show. Um, And then I want to reserve a special thank you to the listeners who support the show on Patreon. So if you become, if you use Patreon, you become a patron of the show, which is sort of like the old um, 
Renaissance approach that you're patrons of the arts. And so the idea is that you pledge a certain amount of money for every show I put out. And the great thing is it can be a small dollar amount because they collect together all of the small dollar amounts and then they do one PayPal transaction of all of those amounts combined to me. So the PayPal fees are much, much smaller per donation than if it's lots of little donations because PayPal is really inefficient at small donations. So if you send a donation of a euro to me, about half of it vanishes in PayPal fees. Whereas if you send a donation of... Now, this is extreme, right? This is not what I expect people to do. This is not what people do. But if you were to hypothetically send me a hundred euro, well, then only about five or... Actually, no, 100 euro is probably about... 10 euro would go on PayPal fees. So one way it's 50% of the money vanishes. And the other way it's like, you know, 5 to 10% of the money vanishes. So obviously PayPal is efficient for large, you know, the, the bigger the amount, the more efficient PayPal is. And Patreon lets you have your cake and eat it because it makes it possible to efficiently give small dollar amounts. And the other great thing, of course, about Patreon is that it's consistent. So every month there is a Patreon payment comes in, which allows me to budget because I have monthly bills coming out. So, you know, monthly income, monthly outgoings that you can plan, you know. And so from a purely practical nuts and bolts level, the support on Patreon is the most valuable kind of support because it allows me to plan, to budget, to you know, the boring practicalities of making a podcast go. It's not what any podcaster wants to be spending all the time and energy on. But it is kind of important. And so I I just I always want to say an extra thank you to the Patreon supporters because literally because of you guys, I have been able to keep to my principles of not having advertisers. I it it's a, a decision, I guess, a, a personality thing, but I don't like the idea of being beholden to a sponsor because I feel that affects what I can say. If there are no sponsors, if there is no no advertiser then you know my opinion is my opinion because there is no conflict of interest whatsoever. Whereas if I start to take on advertisers, well, then advertisers only want to advertise on things that are relevant. So if you have a relevant advertiser, well, then that means inevitably there's a conflict of interest because that advertiser is advertising something to do with photography. And then I suddenly can't give my honest opinion about at least a small subset of photography. And that I don't want to be there. I don't want to do that. And thankfully entirely because of you guys' wonderful help, I do not have advertisers. Therefore, I am free to express myself entirely freely. And I really value that. I really appreciate that. And that's the reason I am so thankful to you guys for supporting the show. Anyway, I've rambled on long enough. Um, I will be posting bullet points that I use to guide this discussion, like, as you've probably guessed, I just talk into the mic and stuff comes out. Uh, but I do do a little bit of homework and I put together bullet points for these these kind of shows. And so I will share those bullet points as the show notes over at www.lets-talk.ie, which is the show's website. And while you're there, you will find the large blue buttons for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. As I say, all of those of you who have, if you haven't and you've been meaning to, well, Christmas is coming. It would be nice if some, you know, people were to just, you know, if you've been on the fence for a while, now would be a very nice time. It's show number 50. It's almost Christmas. You'd make me that extra little bit cheerful if you finally sort of went for it and clicked the button. Anyway, thank you all very much. And until next time, happy snapping.
listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hey Siri, could you read the Three Geeky Ladies promo script? Sure. Elisa says, Welcome to the Three Geeky Ladies podcast and introduces Susay and Vicky. Susay says, Hello everyone. Vicky says, Hi. Elisa, want to know how we feel about the new Apple product? Susay, what about the iOS camera, Vicky, or the MacBook Pro update? Elisa, Susay, and Vicky in unison. Then, listen to the Three Geeky Ladies podcast. Siri, the Three Geeky Ladies podcast on the MyMac Podcasting Network. Thank <laughs> you.